Bibles this evening and open them to Revelation chapter 22. And we're going to continue our study this evening of verses 18 and 19, which is the final warning in Scripture. And in the past, we've studied the final invitation in Scripture, and we learned that that is an invitation from God's people for Christ to return. And it's also an invitation for lost sinners to come to Christ. And we might expect that the final warning that we find in Scripture would have something to do with that, that it would be the threat of condemnation for those who don't believe. But that's not the actual warning that we find here in verses 18 and 19. But rather, this is a warning about tampering with what God says, with changing what God says. Now, having read and studied all the previous material that we have in Revelation, we would I would think that we'd be almost be astounded that someone would take it upon themselves to ever think that they would change what God says. I mean, when we see the supremacy of God, when we see his power and his authority, the fact that he controls all of heaven and earth and with just the spoken word that he can preserve man or he can destroy him, God can do it with just a single word. And you would think that what we would all do is stand back and give God plenty of room when he passes by. The Bible says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But that's not the position that's taken by most people when you think about God's word, whether you're talking about teachers or, or preachers or seminary professors or even many Bible translators, right down to people that sit in the pew, most people do not give the word of God the reverence that it deserves. To respect the Bible means that we receive it as God's word that we trust it implicitly, that every word that we have in Scripture has been spoken by God. And if God is to be trusted, then every word that he speaks is to be trusted as well. And so we have this warning here, and this is to ward off anyone who has an inkling of desire to change God's word. Now, I said the word inkling. Is that a California word too? Does everybody understand inkling? Okay, I wasn't sure you used that here. Not long, it's been a long time since I've used it, but an inkling of a desire. So let's look at Scripture, Revelation 22, verses 18 and 19, which say, For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, if any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. So tonight we're in part number two of this message, the final uh, the final warning, and as promised last week, we're going to start with a new outline this week. Last week we had one outline, and that was mainly an introduction to the subject, and so we'll start with a new one tonight. And uh, I do want to remind you, though, of some of the things we talked about last week. We talked about the speaker of this warning, and we also spoke of the source of the warning. And the speaker may be a little bit hard to determine because when we look at the last verses of this chapter, as I've mentioned before, it's hard sometimes to say, to, to tell who's saying what because sometimes you have an angel that speaks, sometimes you have uh, John that speaks, sometimes it's Christ, sometimes it's the Holy Spirit, sometimes it's the church. And so it's, it may be a little bit hard to identify who says these particular words. But I think this is Jesus speaking. 
Now, even though that you don't have it, if you have a red-letter Bible, you don't see it in red letter, red letters in your Bible. I personally believe that this is Jesus speaking. But even if we say it's John that's saying this, we have to still say that ultimately the source of everything that is here, uh, the, the speaker, the source, it all is of God. One way or the other, this is from God. Now, there are some, though, who believe that these words were added by a scribe. Uh, that's because it was common in the ancient times for writers of books to add their own little anathemas, their own little warnings, sort of like a copyright to their books. Not a copyright we have today, but just this warning, don't change anything that I've written. And so there are people who say that there was a scribe who added this to the scriptures at a later time, that he was uh, so respectful of what he was doing and copying scripture that he put his own little warning in here and he says, don't touch the word of God. And I pointed out to you last week that if a scribe were to have added a warning not to touch what's written in Scripture, and he wrote something extra to the Scripture, then he broke his own warning. So that doesn't really hold up, I don't think. But I think what it does tell us that what we need to do here is to pay very strict attention to the solemnity of the warning that God gives, and that means hands off concerning his word. Now we're going to go into the subject a little bit further tonight and start a new outline. And there's some important truths that I want to consider concerning the word itself. And these verses help to elucidate these truths. So I have two major points that I want to bring to you. And I don't actually have time to bring them both to you tonight. So we're just going to get started and I'll finish up next week. But the first one, this first one that we want to look at this evening is that the Bible is the full revelation of God to man. The Bible is the full revelation of God to man. What we have in these 66 books that are bound into one volume called the Bible is the complete revelation that God gave to man. All of the Bible was inspired by God so that every word here God intended to put in Scripture. I would like you to turn, if you would, to 2 Peter chapter 1. And here we find some important information about how that we have received the Bible. And this is a question that's often asked. How did we get the Bible? And it's, an, it's a question that you don't want to have answered by the History Channel. And you don't want to find, ask somebody who's a skeptic, an agnostic, an atheist, or a liberal scholar. You don't want to ask them where we got the Bible. We can go to Scripture, and the Bible itself tells us where it came from. And Peter's very clear about this. So he says in Second Peter chapter 1, starting in verse number 16, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty." For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. Let me stop there for just a minute in the reading and explain to you that Peter is talking here about the Mount of Transfiguration. And this is when he and uh, James and John were with Christ and they were taken up on the mountain, they saw Christ transfigured before him, and they saw a glimpse of his glory. Now, 
the point here that Peter is making, if this is something that he saw with his eyes, the other apostles saw with his eyes, but notice how he follows up in verse number 19, or rather, uh, yes, verse number 19, where he says, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. In other words, this is even more sure than what we have seen with our eyes, whereunto well, uh, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved or spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. That is a more sure word that God spoke through men through the power of the Holy Spirit. So Peter says that we have received the prophecy of the Bible as men of God were moved by the Holy Spirit. And the word prophecy there does not mean just things that are foretold as future. But this is actually a Jewish way of speaking and saying that the entire Bible, everything that we have written came from God and he moved his specially appointed men to write down his words. Now the Apostle Paul weighs in on this also in the origin of scripture in a very important text as he writes to Timothy. And this is a scripture that we read this morning in the sermon. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6, 16 and 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So the scripture is inspired by God. And inspiration of God is actually, that whole phrase is one word in the original Greek, and it's the word theopneustos, and it means God breathed. So inspiration of God, when you see that in Scripture, it means that God breathed. God put this into these men. So Scripture came to us by God putting into the mind of human authors what he wanted them to say. And he didn't just inspire the thoughts, he inspired the words that they wrote. And that's what we call verbal inspiration of Scripture, that God actually inspired the words that they wrote wrote down. And 2 Timothy is, is also important to this study tonight because the 17th verse says that God inspired, what he inspired is sufficient to thoroughly instruct us into all good works. And all good works are works that come from God. Every good gift and every perfect gift cometh down from the Father of lights and whom is no uh, shadow, variableness, neither shadow of turning. So everything that's good in the world comes from God. And so this scripture becomes a proof text not only for verbal inspiration of scripture, but also for the plenary inspiration of scripture. Now, plenary inspiration means full and complete. So we have the full and complete revelation from God. And that's a very important point. And we're going to take it up at a later time because it is so important. But God has no purpose for a further revelation because he's already given us everything that we need. Now, as you know, there are some people that claim that they have a gift of prophecy that's especially prominent among charismatic groups when they say that they, can, they speak in tongues and they get words of knowledge and so forth. 
And the point of that is to ask the question to those people, if God has already given us the plenarily inspired word of God, if he's already given us the word that thoroughly equips us for everything, every good works, then what is it that God would possibly say in another revelation that he hasn't already said in 66 books of the Bible? So Paul is either right or he's wrong. He's either writing under inspiration of Scripture or he's not. And if we believe what God says and what the Bible says, we know Paul's not going to lie about it. God's never inconsistent about it. And so we needn't expect that we're going to receive some further revelation. And before we get through with the study, we're going to look at that again. And we're going to give you another argument why we should reject any other kind of, uh, of revelation when people say they have a revelation from God. And I, I just might mention this as I, as I go along here. You know, there are people that, that, that say things like, well, I saw Jesus in my bedroom last night. And Jesus spoke to me or Jesus said this or said that. He doesn't have to speak to you in the bedroom. He spoke to you through his word. And that's the revelation that you get from God. Now, along with that, we need to talk about something else, and that is divine preservation. And it should be easily recognized by the text in Revelation 22 that God has divinely preserved his word. And so, when we talk about inspiration of Scripture, we often say this, that Scriptures were divinely inspired in the original autographs. And that means that when the men originally penned the words, whether they were in Hebrew or Greek or Aramaic, what they originally wrote was exactly what God told them to write. But then someone would say, and they would be correct about this, they would say, well, we don't have the original autographs any longer. We have all these... uh, manuscripts, but there's not one single original manuscript that has survived all the way from the time of the Old Testament, New Testament, until today. We don't have any of those. Now, we do have copies of manuscripts. In fact, there are thousands of copies of manuscripts, and and some of them are very old, but they are still copies. So, can we believe that the Bible hasn't changed somewhere along the line from then until now. And that's why we need to talk about divine preservation. Now, I want to make it also clear in, in our study that we're reading what I've just read to you tonight here in, in the King James Version is a translation. It is a translation of manuscripts, and it's a very good translation, but it's not an inspired translation. And there's some people that just fall all apart when you say something like that. Uh, They think you're just totally wrong about this. And they protest and they say, well, the King James is as inspired as the original was. And some will go as far to say that the Hebrew and the Greek manuscripts, if there is an error in those, that the King James English actually corrects Hebrew and Greek manuscripts. Well, that's that's nothing but pure fabrication. That's silliness. That's a claim that the translators never made themselves. So there are some people who say, well, what you can't do is you can never change a single word in the King James. Don't tamper with it because it's right all the way down to the punctuation marks. And that, that is an indefensible position. You can't, really, you can't really defend that kind of a statement. And uh, 
one of the reasons that you can't is because the King James that we're using has gone through several revisions until we get the final product that we have that we're using tonight. Now, don't get all upset about that because the revisions that are made are mostly things to do with printing errors. Those things were updated. But you'd have to ask the question, if you had received one of those originals that came hot off the press in 1611, would you have had the word of God when it was given to you? Well, I think that we would. And I don't know a preacher that would say, wouldn't give his eye teeth. And that's not saying, is that all right too, eye teeth? Uh, Who wouldn't give his eye teeth to have a copy of that 1611, the original that came off the printing press. I know that I would because I could probably retire and uh, I wouldn't be, well, I'd still preach to you. I'd come and see you. But um, if I had, that'd be very, very valuable. I mean, we'd all want to have that. Tonight, I don't, think, I don't think that there's anybody here that's using a 1611 version. Now, Gary Albright, where's Gary? Gary has one. Gary has a, has a 1611 version. He probably doesn't have it with him tonight. And if he did, I'd say, Gary, don't bring that up here for me to read because I'd have a lot of trouble with it. And I'd have to have go in a lot of practice to try to read to you what that 1611 version says because of you know differences of typeset and all those kinds of things that make it really hard. So what we have to do is that when we defend the King James Bible, which I think is what we ought to defend, we, we most certainly ought to defend the King James Bible, but in our defense, we have to be right and correct in the way that we defend it. We, we defend it as being accurately the word of God, but we also have to be accurate in the defense that we make of it. Now, one of the things that I really like about the King James, I grew up with it, of course, but I like the these and the thous. I like that. But if somebody were to give us an updated version that was faithful to the same kind of translation that the King James translators used... There wouldn't be anything wrong with that. There's no particular virtue in using archaic words. And if we replace those with modern words, it would be fine as long as those words were correct that replaced the words that were in the King James Version. So what we have in our English version is not an inspired translation, but we do have a preserved translation. And what I mean by that is God has preserved his word so that we can have confidence that what we read is faithful to the original. So we don't actually have to claim that there's not a single word of the King James that couldn't have been translated in a, in a better way in order to have confidence in what we read. Now, the preservation of the word of God is implied in many scriptures. John 10.35 says the scriptures cannot be broken. 1 Peter 1.23-25 says the word of God is incorruptible. Psalms 119.89 says God's word is settled forever. Isaiah 40 verse 8 says the word of God shall stand forever. And those are statements that would be of little comfort to us if what we are reading is not faithful to the original. For example, when, when, when Psalm 119.89 says the word of God is settled forever in heaven, well, that's wonderful to know that. We praise God that his word is settled in heaven, but if that's the only place where we have the perfect word of God, then what good does it do us? Because Peter says we are born again by the incorruptible word of God. So what assurance do we have that we have been born again if the copies that we have of God's word have been corrupted? 
And that's not to say that there hasn't been an attempt to corrupt God's Word, because there have been many attempts to do it. Uh, With some of the new Bible versions, there have been a lot of changes, and there are versions that are totally worthless, things like the Living Bible and the Message. Those are absolutely, totally worthless. They're not translations. What we would call them is very, very poor commentary. And so we would be foolish to think that Satan hasn't tried in every way to violate the warning that we have in Revelation 22. He, he likes nothing better than to corrupt the word because if the Bible tells us that we are saved, we're born again by this incorruptible word, then the thing that he wants to do is corrupt it so that people don't get the truth of God's word. So uh, you don't believe everybody that says, oh, I've got a new translation. It's the greatest thing you ever saw, and it's the word of God. And, and so you, just because they printed it doesn't make it good, doesn't make it a good translation. So we have to be careful about the things that we read. Now, having said that, though, we also have to be careful about what some King James-only advocates say about the King James because they often make unsubstantiated, inaccurate, and ignorant false charges against certain of the changes that have been made in modern versions. And so they'll say, well, these versions are purely the devil's handiwork. And you have to be careful that you don't drink in everybody, what everybody says, that it's an opponent of those modern versions. And what I'm not I want you to be clear about this. I'm going to give you some examples here, but I want to be very clear. I'm not advocating that we shift to a modern version, but I am saying that if you're going to criticize something, make sure the criticisms are accurate and they make good sense, or you're going to end up looking foolish when you defend it. Now, I understand probably when I get through telling what I'm going to tell you tonight that there may be some confusion And and this is why it would have been very helpful if you had been in our Sunday school class this morning, the forum class, because we spent just about the entire hour talking about divine Bible preservation. That was pretty much the subject of what we were talking about. But I'm going to explain some things to you and and how that we have to be careful about criticisms that are made uh, about other versions. We do have to make the correct criticisms. Now... Someone gave me a pamphlet the other day, and Brother Dalton, if you would just put it up there. This is just a small part of it. I want to call your attention. Now, let me go. go me, give me back the bigger, um, if you can, the, the blown-up version, that part right there on your bottom right. It says counterfeit. New King James Version, counterfeit. And then it gives the definition of counterfeit. It says to imitate or copy closely, especially with the intent to deceive. And so this is what many people will say, King James advocates say about the new King James Version right there, that it's with intent to deceive. Is that a true statement? Was the new King James translated with the intent to deceive? Now, I'm one who thinks that there are good criticisms to make about the new King James Version. But if you take a King James only position, be sure that you choose the battle against it wisely. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to quote to you some things that this author said and show you where he's wrong in his criticisms. Now, again, I'm not saying switch the New King James, but I'm saying be accurate in what you criticize. So let me begin with this example. Uh, This author of the pamphlet claims that the New King James takes hell out of the Bible. 
Now, here's the quote. The NKJV, or New King James Version, removes the word hell 23 times, exclamation point. And how do they make it much clearer? By replacing hell with Hades and Sheol. Webster's New Collegiate Dictionary defines Hades, the underground abode of the dead in Greek mythology. The NKJV turns your Bible into mythology. Not only that, Hades is not always a place of torment or terror. The Assyrian Hades is an abode of blessedness with silver skies called happy fields. In the satanic New Age movement, Hades is an intermediate state of purification. Who in their right mind thinks Hades or Sheol is more up-to-date and clearer than hell? Now, that has some terrible problems. That's a bad explanation. Because both Hades and Sheol are transliterated words that are used in the original language of Scripture. When you see hell in, in the New Testament, it's translated from two different words. Either it's the word Hades or it's the word Gehenna. And those aren't the same words, and they don't, they're not synonyms. They don't mean the same thing. And when the word is translated, hell is translated in the Old Testament from the word sheol, it doesn't always mean hell fire. And so what we do is when we preach on those texts, we have to research the background to see what it was the author intended. For example, in Revelation 20, verse 14, it says, And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. And the word hell there is actually Hades. And then when we see hell in what Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28, he uses the different word. He uses the word Gehenna. And there's obviously a difference in the meaning in those two places. And when I preached the messages on hell, if you remember those a few months ago, we looked at Revelation Revelation chapter 20, and I showed you then how the words have to have a, a little bit further Um, investigation to see what the writer intended. Now, there are some who take the interpretation that Hades is what hell, if you want to use the word hell, it's what that's called when a lost person is in the disembodied state. That is, before the body is resurrected and rejoined with the spirit, that the body, or rather the spirit, is in a place called Hades. And then, when the resurrection comes, the second resurrection of of those that are lost, the dead lost, their bodies are raised, and then they're reunited with their spirits, and then they're cast into the lake of fire, which would be the same as Gehenna. And that's actually the position of GTS Shed, and I explained that, and and that might be right. I don't know for sure if that's right or not, but I do know this. There's a very clear distinction between these two words and what they mean. And so when the New King James Version makes that distinction, and it takes the word out of the original language and uses it, then it would be utterly ridiculous to say they're taking hell out of the Bible. And what they've done, the translators have gone soft on the doctrine of hell. Well, that doesn't mean that at all. What they've done is given us the words as they appear in the original text. And then we just read the claim that this pamphlet says that the Webster's Collegiate Dictionary defines Hades as a place in Greek mythology. And that's true. It is true. But when did we start using Webster to explain the Bible? And when did we start researching what Greeks and Assyrians thought about this word and then said, well, that must be what it is then. And so we take what they say, and that's the correct meaning according to their theology. Well, a preacher doesn't go to Webster's Dictionary, and he doesn't go to uh, other places. He goes to good Bible dictionaries. He goes to good commentators. He goes to those who have a good understanding of original text. 
And he looks at that and he learns what the Bible writers mean by the usage of the word. Now, I'll give an example. If I want to know what justification means, am I going to go to a Roman Catholic and say, would you explain that to me? What does justification mean? And then he tells me, and I say, oh, well, that's, that must be what it is then. So I accept that. Or do I throw out the word because he uses it wrongly? Well, no. I find out what the right definition of the word is, and I use the word correctly. So you see a problem here? It's a foolish argument, a a bogus argument when you make these kinds of accusations. But these are things that get repeated around the circle of preachers and people put out pamphlets like that one and people read those and they think, well, that has to be the truth of the matter then. Well, you got to check it out. I mean, how can you possibly criticize a word that's been transliterated from the original language and brought over into the translation? See, if you're going to criticize that, then you have to criticize the King James for using the word baptize. Baptize is a transliterated word from the Greek. It actually means immerse. And so you'd have to ask the question, well, were the King James translators trying to cover up immersion? I'll leave that question for you to answer. And then, uh, quite truthfully, it's, a, it's a, an answer that most King James advocates don't want to deal with. It means immersion, so why did they use baptize? Well, there's nothing wrong. It's a transliterated word, and that's what Hades and Sheol are as well. Now, here's another one. This writer says, one of the most absurd changes ever made in changing the word is, uh, ever made is changing the word servant to slave. The New King James Version in Romans 6.22 reads, but now having been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the NKJV in 1 Corinthians 7.22 calls the Christian Christ slave. Talk about a contradiction. John 8.36 says, If the Son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. But isn't a Christian supposed to serve? Yes, in love, not as a slave. Galatians 5.13 explains it perfectly. For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty... And this author puts in quotation marks, not slavery. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. Now, I have my own comment on that one. I call that sophomoric Bible interpretation. Because the first thing that needs to be done is to research slavery in the New Testament, and you find out that it's not the same as 1800 slavery in America. And secondly... The freedom that he speaks about in John 8.36 and the liberty of Galatians 5.13 is not the same when it's used in relation to slavery to sin. And so I would suppose that what the author thinks is that when Paul uh, said what he says in Romans 6.17 and 6.20, just a few verses before what he quoted in Romans 6.22, and you could look all of that up, that he said we're servants of sin that according to his interpretation, that interpretation, then it would mean that we're free to sin or not to sin, and not that we're in total bondage to sin as unregenerated people. So that's the part that's totally absurd, because if the author is correct about this, then he's saying, and if he's consistent about it, he destroys the doctrine of total depravity. And he says, well, we can sin or not sin at will, because we're not actually slaves to sin. So the question is, are we truly slaves to God when we become saved? Absolutely, we're the slaves of God when we become saved. Now, we are servants, that's true, but we are the servant 
who is willing to have his ear bored through with it all and to say that I will serve God forever and I will do God's will, not my own. So yes, we, we are set free from sin. We have liberty from the bondage of corruption. But what we have done when we become saved people is that we change our allegiance from Satan to God. And we're not free from God. We're not free from him. We belong to him. We serve him out of love. He's purchased us. He purchased us with his own blood. We do serve him out of love. But that doesn't mean that a slave can't love his master. And that somehow because you, when you become a slave that you stop loving. You can't do that anymore. No, we become willing slaves of Christ. Now here's another one I want to read to you and another complaint. 1 Corinthians, this is on 1 Corinthians one twenty one. He says, 1 Corinthians one twenty one changes foolishness of preaching to foolishness of the message preached. There's nothing foolish about the gospel of Jesus Christ unless you're not saved. 1 Corinthians one eighteen says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. Now can I tell you again, that context is one of the most important things when you start to preach the word of God. You have to consider the context. And what is the context of 1 Corinthians 1? Well, this fellow actually makes an argument and then he crosses himself up and didn't even know it apparently because the context is that Paul is not using the wisdom of the world when he preaches. He was speaking to Greeks, and it's the Greeks who consider the gospel to be foolish. And so to them, God becoming a man and then dying on a cross is pure foolishness. And so Paul makes the statement like this. The Greeks think the gospel is foolish, and it is by this thing that they called foolish. That foolish gospel is what we're actually saved by. And so the New King James reads this way. This is how the New King James reads. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. And have you ever noticed that almost every time that I read 1 Corinthians one twenty one in the King James Version that I read it this way, and we'll have it on the screen, this is the way I read it. For after that and the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching, and then here's the phrase, that is by the foolishness of the thing preached. That's the thing that I add to when I'm explaining it. It's by the foolishness of the thing preached to save them that believe. And you know why I read it that way? Because Paul doesn't mean that preaching is foolish, not the act of preaching is foolish. The Greeks had no problem with that. They have no problem at all with preaching. The problem is the gospel. The problem is the gospel itself. They think it's foolish. And that's exactly what the New King James Version says. Now, let me give you a couple more, and we'll stop with these. I'm getting late on time here, but I just want to give you a couple more. 1 Corinthians 6.20, which says, O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and opposition of science falsely so-called. That's the King James reading. And so this author complains that the word science is changed to knowledge in the New King James Version. So here's how the New King James reads. O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. 
Now, the whole point that Paul's making here is he's talking about knowledge that is not really knowledge. He's speaking of a false knowledge. The word science means knowledge. And in fact, in other places of Scripture, it's translated as knowledge. It comes from the word gnosis, and it's the same word from what we get, not, we get knowledge. In fact, the Greek dictionary says that science means knowledge. But this fellow's premise from the very beginning is that the New King James doesn't add, doesn't, or rather doesn't aid understanding, but actually makes the Bible more difficult to understand. So let me ask you, if Paul meant knowledge by this word science, then which word do you think is clearer? When you hear science, what do you think? You think chemistry, physics, biology? That's what I think. And so if they change the word to knowledge, which is actually what it means, have they done violence to the scripture? Is that a perversion? Is that a counterfeit? Well, no. They've just given us a word that's more easily understood by us in today's modern language. So to say that you can't change a word in the King James would be a ludicrous assertion. So you pick the battles wisely or you're going to come off looking very, very bad. Now the last one is one that you've heard me preach about many times. And this person complains about 2 Timothy 2.15. What does that say? Well, the King James Version reads this way, 2 Timothy 2.15. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now, here's the complaint that's made about it. Here's what he says. In 2 Timothy 2.15, the New King James Version removes that obsolete word study. Now, that's that said facetiously when he says this. It removes the obsolete word study. The only time you're told to study your Bible, and then in big letters he says, and they zap it. Why don't they want you to study your Bible? Maybe they don't want you to look too close. You might find what they're doing to your Bible. The real KJV is the only English Bible that instructs you to study your Bible. Now, here's how the New King James reads on that verse. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now, this fellow makes the assertion that the translators of the New King James do not want you to study your Bible. Now, I can understand this, that that people hear that and they just go off. Well, how can anybody have the audacity to change the word of God and, and say, you're not supposed to study your Bible? Well, you can understand why people would be upset about that. But the thing about it is, if you actually study your Bible, that you'll discover that the word study there actually means to be diligent. It's not talking about studying in the sense of hitting the books and spending hours and hours looking over the Bible, although that would be fine if that's what it meant, but that's not what the word means. What it means is to be diligent and to be earnest in living your Christian life so that you don't bring any reproach upon the name of the Lord. And the second half of the verse enforces the thought of study because it says rightly dividing the word of truth. And so in order to rightly divide the word of truth, what do you have to do? You have to study. So, if the New King James translators were trying to tell you, don't study your Bible, then what they should have done was got rid of the second half of the verse instead of leaving that in there. See what I'm talking about? Pick the battle wisely. Know what you're talking about. Now, all I've said all of this to tell you tonight, use wisdom when you defend the Bible. 
you're going to come up against people that absolutely do not believe what the Bible says. They don't believe it comes from God. They're going to throw up all kinds of defenses against you. And one of the things they'll bring up, what about all these other Bible translations? There are so many. They don't all say the same thing. Well, you're going to have to know how to defend that. And you have to defend it wisely. So the best thing to do is not pick up arguments that have been repeated over and over that have no weight because they don't make sense because finally somebody's going to come along and they're going to nail you on it because you said the wrong thing so don't make ignorant and foolish assertions so be careful about repeating those kinds of things and and don't claim infallibility for something that translators didn't claim infallibility for Now, I want to make it very clear to you again. I said, maybe somebody's going to go away and they don't understand what I'm trying to say to you. I'm not saying that we're going to switch from the King James. I'm not saying that we don't have the Word of God in the King James because I believe that we do. All I'm saying is, let's defend it properly. Now, here's the thing about it. If God did not preserve his Word, then there have been ample opportunities in the last 2,000 years to completely destroy it. You think about the first printing press. What if they had decided that they were going to print a totally out-of-the-way, over-the-top, horrible translation of the Scriptures, and that got presented to people off the first printing press? Do you think that would be a problem? What if they had decided that they were going to print only the Gnostic Gospels rather than the true Gospels that we find in Scripture? What if they had decided that? You know why they didn't? Because God preserved his word. And he made sure that we have it accurately today and that we can depend on it. Somebody took it to heart, the warning that we find in Revelation 22. And God made sure that his word was preserved. Now next week we're going to come back to this and we're going to look a little bit more closely into the particulars of the warning that's given here. Trust your Bible. You're using the King James Bible. You can trust it to be the word of God. Be be careful about how you defend it, though. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your many blessings, and we thank you, Lord, for the truth of your word and how blessed that we are that you have spoken to us through your word and that you've given us something that we can depend upon. And we know that what you've said is truth, and we know that it's by the ever-living word of God, the incorruptible word of God, that we're saved. And we thank you for that. Lord, help us to use wisdom. Help us to spend the time studying and learning what we need to learn in order to defend our doctrine, defend our beliefs uh, to people in, a, in, a, in the right way. Help us to be diligent students of your word. So, Lord, we pray that you bless us tonight, and we pray that you'd be with all of us here as we fellowship in just a few moments. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So,